we are in Lent, first Sunday of Lent. You know, I grew up in a church, and I didn't know what Lent was, never heard of it. And uh, as I began to study and mature and everything, I began to learn about Lent and the different ways that churches, especially the higher churches, um, live out and practice Lent. Lent is a time, and there's a lot of different approaches to it, Lent is a time where we begin that process of preparing our hearts for the Lord, okay? For specifically his death, burial, and resurrection coming up at Easter. We celebrate Easter, the risen one. So this is, uh, this is a time when we spend on this journey preparing ourselves for that, just like Advent prepares us for the birth of the Savior, Emmanuel, he didn't forget us. Well, this is uh, celebrating his second birth, if you will, his uh, resurrection from the dead, coming to life. And so it's a, for me, it's become a very special time of talking through things. You may remember last year, we were in Leviticus, uh, around Leviticus 14 or so, and it said that uh, if you were unclean, you had to go outside the village if you were sick until you were well again. And so we stopped uh, right there and went into Lent and went to Hebrews 13 where it says Christ, uh, he, Jesus, it was necessary for him to go outside the village, outside the gate, outside the city where it's unclean to uh, die for us. And so Hebrews says, therefore, we should go with him outside. So we did that all during Lent. We looked at the seven last words on the cross of Jesus while he's outside the camp in an unclean place, dying for us, becoming our Passover lamb. So this year, we want to do something a little different. We stopped Ephesians right in the middle. Okay, Ephesians 4 will pick up after Lent. We went through Ephesians 1 through 3. Because I want to take a look at another aspect. We've been focusing for all last year and this year on this house that God is building. Remember Leviticus is a, um, it's a blueprint for the house. And Ephesians gives us this, this picture of what this house looks like. And we're, we're being added to it stone by stone, believer by believer. And so you, we, if you've been around, you've heard us talk about it's a house of blessing, a house of thanksgiving, house of reconciliation, that sort of stuff. So what I want to do is pause and take a look at something most of you have probably not looked at before, and that is the covenants through Scripture. You see, the covenants, they are the backbone of the Bible, if you will, the covenants, okay? If you were to <clears throat> take the Bible and create a table of contents like we do, you know, you have the creation, the fall, the flood, you know, Abraham redemption, you have all that. Well, every one of those are connected to a covenant. And so the covenants, they they chart the course through scripture of what God's intention is <clears throat> and what his plan is. And these covenants layer on top of each other. And so as the covenants come out and unfold, you begin to get a bigger picture of what God is doing with us and this creation. So the covenants actually are the, they are one way of grasping the plan of God woven through the center of scripture. Um, and Leviticus, by the way, is one of those covenants. Okay. Uh, Exodus 19, what did he say when they were at the base of Mount Sinai? Brand new, just out of slavery. If you obey me fully, I will make you, um, out of all the earth, you'll be my prized possession. I'll make you a kingdom of priests. I will make you a holy nation. And Leviticus is the book on holiness that teaches them what they have to be like to be priests. Uh, it talks about sacrifice, priesthood, clean, unclean, all of that. You may remember that. And so that was the blueprint, but that's just one of the covenants. There's a whole series of covenants through the scriptures that are all connected, and they feed into each other, okay? So I want to take some time during Lent, and we're going to walk through these covenants because it's going to give us a whole different perspective of this house that God is building. So Ephesians is giving us some of the characteristics of the house. We're blessed, we're loving, we're thankful, that sort of thing. The covenants give us the intention of God for building the house to begin with. And what does he want this house to be like? So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to start, <coughs> excuse me, with the very first covenant in the Bible. Hate COVID lungs, but that's what I have. So let's, uh, let's begin with a very simple question. What is a covenant? What actually is it? You see, a covenant is a commitment or a treaty 
between two parties. Now, for the first part of the, this, this time, I'm going to be a little bit technical. Just hang in there with me. Hopefully, it'll all come together when we're done, toward the end, okay? It's a commitment or a treaty between two parties, and there are two types, two types of covenants. One is called a parity covenant, where you have two people that are equal to each other in parity as opposed to disparity. So you have a parity covenant. An example of that would be a marriage covenant. So in Malachi, for example, this is one of the places where it refers to marriage as a covenant. Another thing you do, now remember Malachi is the last book in the uh, canonical Old Testament. And so he is now, uh, he's now getting in their face a little bit serious because uh, both na- the northern kingdom has been destroyed, southern kingdom has been sent out, deployed. Uh, he kicked him out of Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, and he's going to bring him back. But he's getting in their face a little bit here. So he has several charges to bring to them in Malachi, and this is one of them. Another thing you do is you flood the Lord's altars with tears. So they're coming and they're crying. You weep and you wail because he, that's God, no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? They hadn't figured it out. He destroyed the northern kingdom, kicked the southern kingdom out, and they're asking why. <laughs> okay, we can look back with 2020 hindsight and have the whole Bible to explain it to us because they're sinful, rebellious, and they're not interested in having the right heart. Why? Here's his answer. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Several places where marriage is called a covenant, quite honestly, Covenant, this is a word that distinguishes the Christian marriage from the marriage in the world, okay? When you think about the way the world thinks of marriage, it's typically um, more thought of more in terms of a contract where you negotiate. Well, if you've ever gone to any leadership classes, you know what the definition of a good negotiation is, right? It's when neither party gets exactly what they want. If one person gets what they want, that means the other one didn't. Well, who wants a marriage like that? So the contract basis for a marriage is based on scorekeeping. And if any of you, those of you that are married will know exactly what I'm talking about. When you track and keep score of what your partner's not doing, you always tailor it into your best interest. Okay? So growing up, for example, I, uh, Nancy had to help me learn when we were first married that we, I should pick up my dirty clothes. Simple. But now all these years later, she's forgotten that I've learned how to do that. So we don't start our disagreements with, I'm so glad you pick up your dirty clothes. We start to, our arguments like, how come you haven't taken the trash out? And I say, well, you, you did, did notice that I picked up my dirty clothes, right? And she's like, well, yeah, of course, you're grown up, you should do that. Why are you getting no credit either way? Okay, no, I'm just joking. She's sitting right there. <laughs> okay, a, a, a marriage built on a contract is always based on negotiation and scorekeeping. A marriage based on a covenant is based on sacrifice, not negotiation. And sacrifice is saying, how about I do this for you? I love you. How about I do this for you? I love you. How about I do this? Let me do this. Let me find as many things as I can to do that for you. Nancy's much better at that than I am, I'll be honest. And I'm getting better, but slowly. But that's what a covenant is based on, is that you put the other, in a marriage, you put the other person first. Uh, That's spelled out in Ephesians 5. We're going to get there after Lent, actually. But then the other type of treaty is called a disparity covenant, where the parties are of unequal status. Here, that's an example of a, a master and a slave, a king and a servant, that sort of thing. Okay? So in the Bible, the, the covenants with God are all disparity covenants. Why? Because he's God, and we are not. So here's what that looks like. He always chooses the partner. Always. He chose Adam. He chose Abraham. Chose Isaac. Chose Noah. Chose Jacob. He chooses the partner in the contract, in the disparity covenant. I mean, sorry. He declares the terms of the covenant, not us. If you obey me fully, here's what I'm going to do. He determines the consequences. He decides what's going to happen if you do or if you don't do it. Okay? He's the one that gets to decide that. He identifies the sign of the covenant. Some of you are familiar with the concept after the flood. We'll look at this one, actually, of the rainbow being a sign. 
to remind God and us that, that is, a sign is always between the two parties that never again are we going to uh, violate this covenant. Okay? We use signs today, a wedding ring. That's a sign of a covenant. That's why we, it's a symbol that we use in our marriages in the United States. And so I see, that, I see that ring all the time. And it reminds me of Nancy and how blessed I am and how much I love her. And it causes me to pray for her regularly throughout the day because it's right here. It's on my finger. But um, the covenants in the Bible, because they're all disparity covenants, are always described in this kind of language. God calls it my covenant, not our covenant. Okay? It's always called my covenant, not our covenant. And the covenant partner is never in a position in this disparity. This person here is never in a position to negotiate the terms of, a, of the covenant or the consequences. They can't say, okay, God, well, you said if I obey, then uh, you're going to make me a holy nation. I don't think I like that. I think instead, um, if I obey half the time, then you're going to do it. That doesn't happen. God says, take it or leave it. I'm God, you're not. It's very simple. So every covenant in the Bible is his covenant made with us, and uh, we don't get to negotiate the terms of that. He does. The only option we have is to accept or reject the covenant. That's the only option. Okay? Covenants are filled with promises and other things like that, and we'll look at some of those as we go through. But uh, the goal, what I want to do in this series, this we're continuing the house that God built because this is, the, this is part of the series, is what is this house for? I want to take a look at these covenants because I want to I answer two questions or wrestle with two questions. What do we learn about this house that God is building by this covenant, this promise, this commitment? And the second one is, why did Jesus come to die? It's captured in the covenants. He came to earth specifically to die. The gospel tells he went to Jerusalem to die. And so as we look in these covenants, we're going to see it. Today when we get to communion, you're going to see a very good ass, uh, part of how the first covenant and how it fits together. So let's talk about... Um, the first covenant, now let me say this first. One of the unique things about the covenants that are in the covenant, the covenant process, by the way, uh, we use love technical terms, the uh, suzerain vassal treaty, that means the king and the servant, okay? Uh, that was common in every country, every ancient country. But what's unique about the covenants that God makes is that the covenants dominate the entire biblical story from beginning to end. If you just follow the covenants, you're going to see the God plan of God traced through. And they're profoundly theological. They're not about economics. They're not about politics. They're, they're about theolo theolo uh, theology. I think I know how to say that since I talk about it all the time. <laughs> they're about God and his relationship with us. They lay out God's love for his creation and his plan to redeem and bless that creation. So each covenant, as I said, is layered on the one before. And when you begin to put them all together, you fill them up. They all fit under the umbrella of Christ. And you can see in three dimensions, if you will, what he's doing and why he's doing it. So the first covenant, I'm going to call the cosmic covenant, okay? Because it's about God and the cosmos, the earth, the creation, all of creation. Genesis 1, the Bible affirms that the original creation was solely based on what we call performative speech acts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you have a series of verses and God said, let something happen. Okay, now, when God says it, two things are true right away. Number one is going to happen, and number two, the fact that he said it is what makes it happen. It's not like it might happen in history. It's a certainty, and it begins to happen the moment he says it. So he says it into creation. He makes it happen. Okay, so uh, right off the bat, creation is talked about. You ever think the Bible begins and ends with creation? It's going to become important in just a moment when we look at this, uh, this covenant. After the fall, God promised a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah 50, uh, 65. I love this, Pat. We could have gone many places to see this language. I just love this one. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. It must be important to him to want a heaven and earth because he created one and we messed it up and he creates a new one. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Praise Jesus. I'm glad some of these memories are going to disappear. 
but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. Now think about that. Now we're getting to the heart of creation, why it's even here. Be glad and rejoice in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. That's what we're made for, joy. Fruit of the Spirit, love. What's the next one? Joy, right? I will rejoice over Jerusalem. God is saying, I will. Now remember, this is in Isaiah when the southern kingdom's already gone now. And so he's telling them, he's not forgetting them. I will rejoice in what's happening here with you. I will take joy in you. I will take delight in my people. And we learn from other passages, that's us. That's all the faithful in Christ. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. So right off the bat, God promised to create. He creates and he promises to create a new heaven and a new earth. So this demonstrates his intent to provide a cosmos in which we can thrive and continue to reveal his goodness. In fact, that's, if you know, typically, especially when I was young youth growing up, the way we started evangelism, we were taught to let people know that they're in sin and they're separated from God. Okay, but God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that didn't work too well over time. I mean, who, who wants to come to God when you say, do you know you're a sinner and uh, you're going to die? <laughs> you know how the people started, the apostles started in Acts and in most of the creeds, both in the Bible and outside the creed? They start with creation, okay? Well, I believe in God the Father, creator of all things. Why? Because this is given to us as a gift for two reasons that's what I just said one is to thrive to enjoy it okay now you live up here and it loses its novelty just look for a second just look out the window and look at how beautiful this is right here he gave it to us yes the snow is beautiful I'm a Florida boy still beautiful <laughs> so it, it, it brings us joy. I have no doubt when I get to the, to the new earth, I'm going to be trying my hardest to catch up with Tim Sealing going down the slope. Or Matt Dayton, he's going to teach me how to, I've never crossed country skiing. I'm going to learn how so I can try to keep up with him. Okay, But you're going to have to keep up with me on a Jeep. Okay, Four-wheeling. So it's, it, we, it's there for our enjoyment. That's what it's there for. But it's also there to teach us how good God is and that we are not alone. And so often when I'm sitting in a bar or coffee shop talking to somebody, I will often start with creation if they don't really capture Christianity. He made that. You know, what a, what a wonderful way to start the conversation of how good God is as opposed to, yeah, you have sin. They never said that in the evangelistic sermons. That came later. That came after they came to Christ when they wrote letters back to the churches. Then they began to explain the sin aspect. But that's not where they started. They started with how great is this God that we serve? So what makes creation a covenant? That's the question. What makes it a covenant? Well, in order to have a covenant, you have to have at least two parties. And I'm going to argue that there are three in this covenant. So God begins the scriptures with a covenant about creation, and he ends with a covenant about creation. Revelation. There are three parties. But remember, it's a disparate relationship. Here's God, and here we are, here. So, the very first thing we know is that God is the responsible one in that he spoke the creation, the cosmos, into existence. He spoke it into existence. So, what he spoke into existence, we can divide it into two broad categories. So just hang with me because these are the two parties. One is the material or the, uh, the, uh, the better word for it is the inanimate matter. Okay, what we think of as the earth, dirt. Okay, and the second party, and you're probably wondering, how is dirt a party? You'll find out. The second party is the animate portion, and those are the creatures who inhabit the cosmos. You have two groups. Party number one, the inanimate, the matter, 
party number two, the animates, all the people that inherit, I mean, all the, all the creatures that inherit it. His relationship is with both of them in very different ways to create this covenant, to create a symbiotic relationship that all works for his glory and our pleasure and joy. So the disparity is revealed in that God is over and in charge of both the earth and its inhabitants, both parties, okay? We do not get to choose. We only get to obey. We can't negotiate the the covenant, the terms of it. We can either obey or disobey. And we all know what Adam did (laughs) and everybody else since then. Those is, that's our only choice. So let me say a word about the party number one, the earth. The relationship between God and the earth is striking. You think about the language that's used all throughout the Bibles, the Psalms, the trees clap their hands, right? Even if I didn't receive glory, Jesus said the rocks would rise up and shout. And so right off the bat, all through the Psalms, You have several things going on with the use of all the natural imagery. Number one is that he is animating it, if you will, giving it some purpose and function. But the second thing he's doing is all of those things are gods of the other nations. I am the god of the oceans. Okay? Well, he's talking about I'm the god of of Tiamat. We'll come come to that one other day. That's another god of the Canaanite religions. Okay? So... So the language of used of nature is scattered all throughout the Bible. One day it might be kind of fun just do a series on that and look at what happens with the terms of nature. So he has this relationship with the earth and nature that is, that is just very striking. He assigns responsibility to the elements that he created, the inanimate portions of his creation. For example, Genesis 1.14, the heavenly lights were created for a purpose. And God said, let there be lights, boom, instantly there's lights. It didn't happen later. When he said it, it happens. Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve. They just took on a purpose under God's domain as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And furthermore, he gives more light in Genesis 15, the very next verse. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. There's one of their purposes. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. The prophets tell us, they refer back to this and say they know their place. They know their responsibility. They understand. You read Isaiah 40 and you read the end of Job. Um, Even the sun knows where to go, he says. Okay? So the the inanimate portions of creation have all been given a purpose to create order and structure time. I just think it's fascinating. One of the questions that I get often is, um, does time exist in eternity? We naturally think it doesn't. I think it does. Time was created for us as a gift. So you want to grow a rose, you plant it and you water it and fertilize it. I mean, I never grew a rose, so I'm kind of talking out of turn here. But pretty soon the rose grows up, and, and if you're not careful, it, you kind of have a little blood. because it. But you enjoy the process, right? Well, I can't imagine a process without time. Time was a gift as part of creation to enjoy it. So you see the images of that rely on time in the New Jerusalem. The nations are coming and going out of the, the New Jerusalem, bringing their glory. Well, if there's no time, how would that happen? Time is a gift from the Lord specifically for us to enjoy. And so all of these inanimate uh, parts of creation are there to create that sequence of time, days, weeks, moments, years, decades, that kind of stuff to give us that sense of what's happening. And the Bible goes on and talks about that and says, I mean, I can say this. My body is evidence that the Bible is true. On the inside, I'm being renewed day by day. And on the outside, I'm deteriorating and decaying and getting old. I don't like it. But it's a fact of life. Can't change it. Okay. So let's talk about the inhabitants of the earth, party number two. So the first one is party number one. And then the second one is party number two. And then we're going to look at how they relate together in covenant. Okay. And how they relate to God. 
Okay, the, ele- the inhabitants of the earth, the second party, have verbs that are very car- unique to them alone. For example, um, the verb to create uh, only occurs on verses 5 and 6. When we're talking about the inhabitants. You know, Genesis 1, 21. He says, let me get back there. So God created, there it is, the great creatures. Okay? You see it a second time in verse 27, after he's made all the animals, and so God created mankind or humanity, all of us, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. These are the places where creation occurs. It doesn't occur before this, in the first four days of creation. That's a uniqueness. But there's a second one here. God's blessing is only identified on the inhabitants. Now, just to be clear, I think God's blessing is on the earth and everything else. But the author of Genesis is highlighting the uniqueness of party number two on purpose. Okay? Later on, we learn more about it. So in verse 22, for example, it says, God blessed each of the animals. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the water and the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth, etc., etc." Okay, that was the fifth day. And then in verse 28, this is after he created humans. God blessed the two and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. It sounds a lot like the animals, doesn't it? We have the same function, the same responsibility. It's a different responsibility than the first party. They're not supposed to recreate. They can't. Okay, they're not going to. They have purpose, but they're not going to. But then we find out in Genesis 30 that all the inhabitants have the breath of life. So in verse 30, and, all, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give green plants for food. So these verbs reveal how unique and different the inhabitants are from the matter. The matter has one purpose. God put them there on purpose to generate this sense of time and order. And then he fills that with us and the animals. And we have a very different purpose. Animals are to fill the earth and we are too, but we have some additional responsibility. So the function of the humans is now twofold. Number one, in chapter 28, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse 28 and 29, God blessed the humans and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, just like the rest of the animals, and subdue it. Okay, now that's not said to the animals to subdue it. This is a very forceful word, okay? It's actually used of one person in an evil way, attacking and dominating another person. So he's using a very strong word to take control of the earth, rule over the fish in the sea. So that's the first thing he says. So this is by force. We are to take control of creation. But then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. And the reason is to serve and protect the earth, the creation, and the animals in the garden. Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is kind of an expansion of Genesis 1, specifically related to the humans. And he says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Those two words there, to work it and take care of it, really have the idea of to protect and serve. So now you've got this idea where, where humans have an added responsibility. Um, and that's why Psalm 8 says we've been made a little bit lower than the angels, but we're going to be above all of everything in eternity. That our job, our function, is to subdue uh, the animals, to rule over creation, to protect creation, and to serve it. It doesn't say worship it. And that's an important distinction because in a minute I'm going to mention the E word, environmentalism. We do not worship it. The fact that these strong verbs are used suggests that evil forces were already present by the time God had created the humans. And that's my position too. He created a world it's filled with chaos. And then he carves out a little garden and says, tend it and do this to the rest of all of creation. The humans now serve a very important part in God's covenant. We have a unique 
a distinct and important role to play. With the appearance, uh, by the way, that, that taking control and cultivating it and bringing order to all of creation, you think about where we were 50 years ago. Who knew that you could take, I mean 100 years ago, you could take a uranium atom and split it and produce 230 million electron volts of energy. Who knew that? Nobody. Right? You've heard me tell the story, I think, when I was in Maine three or four years ago, I was with my friend. He goes, let's go make maple syrup. Let's do what? Let's make maple syrup. You buy it down at Costco. No, we go make it. He has 100 maple trees. What? So I went with him. We opened the tap, and we filled these, these buckets. were all full of this sap. And I go, really? You're going to do something with the sap? And he goes, here, take a drink. Oh, the sap? Ooh, it's pretty sweet, right? And I wonder, who's the first person that thought, let's taste the sap of a maple tree? Who's the second person that said, let's taste the sap of an oak tree? <laughs> who's the first person that, that ate a mushroom and said, man, these are really good? Who's the second person that ate a mushroom and go, hoo-hoo-hoo? Who's the third person that ate a mushroom and died? I don't have the answer to those questions, <laughs> I just think they're hilarious questions. When you look at what we knew 100 years ago compared to today, and we haven't even scratched the surface, pun intended, of the earth. We have a wonderful creation, don't we? And so God's plan was for us to subdue it, control it, begin to expand and grow, enjoy it, and look for all of those treasures that are buried that's what the plan was. So the humans are now very important in this covenant. With the appearance of the inhabitants, it's not until after the inhabitants, the animals and the humans are created, God says in verse 31 that it's very good. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1. And the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. All of their vast array. So, in other words, the cosmos is now in excellent shape. It's perfect. Just what God wanted. The relationship between the two parties and God has been established. Inanimate part of creation, you create the sense of time and order and you regulate everything. You know, you control it. You know, when I was in nuclear power school in the Navy, uh, I hadn't done very well in physics in high school, so I had to learn it all over again. But I remember my instructor one day saying, let me show you what this looks like. A U-235, a uranium-235 atom, is what it's in a lot of nuclear reactors. They split it. If you take the nucleus and you put it in New York City, it's the size of a basketball, and you put the first electron in Miami, it's going to be the size of a baseball. Everything we know is 99.9999999999% space. We just don't know how it works, how it's held together. No wonder physicists think that if we can just distort energy levels, we can walk through things. Well, that's kind of what happened with Jesus, and, you know, he did that. Not yet. How, how is it held together? How does it all work? It's supernatural. Hebrews tells us it's held in God's hands. That's how. He created this cosmos, and it's perfect. It's looking at it, and it's in perfect shape, perfect working order. The relationships have been established. So all the inanimate objects, the moon, the sun, the stars, you control the sequence of time. And humans and the animals, you fill the earth. And humans, you now control it. Bring it under control. It's a beautiful picture. From the beginning, God established his relationship with the two parties so that they would relate symbiotically to each other. They depend on each other. This right here. We cannot live without creation, can we? Without the earth. How are we going to eat? How are we going to breathe? We can't survive without it. But guess what? Creation, the earth can't survive without us. It doesn't have the ability to cultivate enough food to feed all the people on the planet. We have to do that. We have to help the earth fulfill its purpose. So he created this beautiful relationship right here. 
Okay, you know what happened, but we're not going to talk about that. That'll come later on, because that'll lead us to the second covenant. So the first covenant, you have God, and he creates two parties. And then he makes them so that they relate together in this kind of relationship. We are to care for, serve, protect, rule over, govern, take it under control, the earth, but not worship it. You see, environmentalism should be a core tenet of us. I said a couple weeks ago, we should be the experts in reconciliation. Guess what? We should be the experts in environmentalism. It's one of the core tenets. Okay, it fits in that constellation of covenants of which Jesus oversees. Through the Son, Hebrews says, God holds everything together. And so what he came to do was fulfill those covenants, all of them, and restore us back to what God had designed in the first place. This beautiful, wonderful creation that he's holding together right here. So he made a covenant with two parties. That's a covenant. But what do we learn? What does this covenant tell us about the house that God is building? And furthermore, what does it tell us about Jesus? Well, think about it with me. Okay? First of all, he loves creativity. And guess what? He made us to love creativity, didn't he? Don't we just enjoy it? I have to admit, I like the changing seasons. I grew up in South Florida. Seasons never changed. When I first moved out of Florida and it snowed the first time, after one year, I said, I see why people moved to Florida. I have this sense of getting old because of the years going through the seasons. I never had that. It was the same all year round. It shows something about his love for us that he would make all this stuff, and I'm going to mention this in communion in just a minute, and bless us with it, give us a desire, a hunger for it, and then bless us with it. He created us to enjoy this, to live in it, to have fun. That's what we're made for. And so the creation, the covenant, the covenant of the cosmos, it shows us a lot about God's love for us and how he made us and why he made us. I'll, I'll confess to you, I love getting on an airplane. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I'm going to do it. In fact, I'm leaving right after communion because I get up high and I can see things that I can't see here on the ground. I get to see creation in a whole different way. It's so magnificent. So the covenant he made in creation was very significant to keep creation functioning the way he wanted it to. And if we had obeyed the covenants, we would have had an eternity of rich blessing. But we didn't. So that leads to another covenant. Father, thank you just for being an incredible God and being so good to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness, your goodness, for creating us the way you did. We are grateful. Very grateful. In your son's name we pray. Amen.